All right, good morning, everyone. Great to see you all. Uh, what a special day we have today as we talk uh, in the book of Acts about uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uh, is given today, and of course, it's a monumental day uh, in the history of the church since it was the birth of the church, and so uh, we'll be talking about that today. Uh, before we get started, uh, let's just bow to the Lord in a word of prayer. Lord God, we do thank you uh, for the giving of the Holy Spirit. There is no greater gift uh, this side of the cross than the giving of the Holy Spirit, and so we're just so grateful uh, for it, Lord, and for all that it means in our lives and how we can become more Christ-like because we have it. Uh, Lord, we just uh, bow to you in, in your incredible plan, and we thank you for, uh, for what it is that you have done. Lord, please open our hearts uh, to receive your word this day. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you remember uh, being a kid on Christmas morning and, and, and being so excited about thinking about uh, what might be under the tree when you, when you ran out from your bedroom to see what was, what, uh, what was there in the morning. And I wonder if you uh, maybe woke your parents up at 5 a.m., you know, jumping on the bed and saying, come on, Mom, come on, Dad, it's time to go see what's under the tree. And uh, that was an exciting time uh, when, when you're a youngster and, and you're, you're thinking about Christmas morning. And I often think that maybe uh, that's what the day of Pentecost was like uh, for the apostles. Uh, Jesus told them to go to Jerusalem, and he said that you will receive the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And of course, Jesus didn't tell exactly what day it was going to be, uh, but I'm thinking that maybe these guys were getting together and, and, and maybe trying to predict when the day would be. And, and so maybe somebody like Peter gets up and says, you know, uh, the next big day on the Jewish calendar is Pentecost. Maybe, maybe it'll be on Pentecost. And, and so I think about these disciples and apostles gathered around on the night before uh, Pentecost and wondering, is tomorrow going to be the day? Is it going to be the day that this might happen? And uh, as they wondered about if tomorrow would be the day, I think they also must have wondered what it was going to be like, uh, just like we might wonder what there might be on Christmas morning. They were like, you know, Jesus said, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And, and so what does that mean? Well, what kind of power? What are we going to be able to do? And, and what does it mean that we're going, going to get to go and be witnesses in, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even uh, to the ends of the earth? Uh, what does that look like? And so uh, if they did guess that these things were going to happen on Pentecost, well, uh, they guessed right because Pentecost was the big day. Uh, and so what we're going to do is read about this uh, event in the life of the church. We're going to read first about the event itself, which happens in uh, verses 1 through 4, and then we'll read about the reaction uh, to the event, which happens in verses uh, 5 through 13. So uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. All right, there's a few things here. So let's talk about the setting first. Uh, what's going on here? Uh, Pentecost. It's the second of the three major Jewish festivals of the year. The first one uh, was Passover. Uh, the second one is Pentecost. And the third one uh, was called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. 
Uh, the Feast of Pentecost was originally known as the Feast of the Harvest because uh, it was done after uh, they pulled in their grain harvest, which happened 50 days or so after Pentecost. And so uh, the, the, uh, the, the uh, verse in Exodus 23.16 talks about this Feast of the Harvest. Also you shall observe the... Oops, did I get that? I'm sorry. Also you shall observe the Feast of the Harvest... Uh, of the first fruits of your labors from what you sow uh, in the field. And so that's what the Feast of Harvest was. Uh, but the feast later became known as Pentecost uh, because it happened 50 days after the Passover. And Pentecost in Greek means 50 or 50th. So although it was originally called the Feast of Harvest, it became known uh, as the Feast of Pentecost. And so that's why it's called that today. And on this day, uh, the apostles are all gathered together uh, in one place, and they were waiting. And this is the second time that we see the use of this word that I told you about a couple of weeks ago. The word is hamathumadon. It's used 10 times in Acts and only one time throughout the rest of the Bible. Uh, and it means that uh, it's a bunch of people uh, together in one place, uh, eagerly uh, expecting something to happen. And, and here they were waiting, gathered and waiting. And we don't know exactly where they were waiting, but we're told that they were in a house somewhere. Now, uh, this may have been the upper room that they were in in Acts chapter 1, or might, or might not be. We just don't know. But one thing scholars do tend to think is that it was close to the temple, because when the sound of the Spirit came, uh, all these people were able to come rushing and be there in a very short period of time. And so uh, we're, we're at the day of Pentecost, and, and this great event uh, happens, and we see it in verses 2 and 3. All of a sudden, there was this incredible uh, sound from heaven, and, and Luke says suddenly, uh, meaning uh, out of nowhere or without warning, they hear this incredible noise, and it's like a rushing wind. Uh, and, and it's not natural, it's supernatural, because it comes out of heaven. And so uh, Luke wants us to see that this is a, a supernatural event, and, and he wants us to see it in symbols. Uh, the Spirit comes accompanied by three symbols. Uh, there is the sound, which is like a rushing wind. So it's not, it, it sounds like a rushing wind, and, and it filled the whole house uh, where these people were sitting. And then at the same time, there appeared to be something that looked like flames. And you have this picture of one flame and then uh, it distributes itself individually on, on each one. Uh, and when these flames distributed themselves individually on each one, then they became filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and immediately they began to speak in speech that seemed like natural speech, but was actually supernatural speech because uh, they were speaking in languages that were not their own and they were heard in those languages too. And so what you have here is, is Luke uh, really placing a lot of emphasis on physical manifestations of the coming of the Spirit. What can be seen? Uh, what can be heard? What can be felt? Uh, and Luke is trying to explain the supernatural to us uh, in human terms. And so, and so that's what he does here. Uh, the wind, for example, the wind was heard. You know, the Greek word for uh, wind is pneuma which is also the same Greek word for spirit. So it's very interesting that Luke is using kind of this word to have double meaning here, the wind and the spirit, same word, pneuma, uh, come. And, and it's this very loud noise that, uh, that is like a mighty wind. And it indicates God's mighty power uh, and the fulfillment of the promise that they would, in fact, receive the Holy Spirit uh, not many days from now. 
And not only was the wind heard, but the fire was seen. And the picture is of this, uh, this huge flame that then comes and, and kind of distributes itself on each one. Like we did the candlelight service. Uh, each person gets a flame. And that's what it was like, each resting on each individual believer uh, in the building. And, and as they received the Holy Spirit, uh, they, be, they were filled uh, with the Holy Spirit and began to speak uh, in this incredible speech. And and when we talk about fire, uh, that's a common symbol, of course, for God in the Old Testament. We, we know about a God appearing uh, to the Israelites in the wilderness in pillars of fire. Uh, we see God appearing uh, to Abraham as fire in the pot. Do you remember that from Genesis chapter 15 when we did that? Uh, God was fire in the pot as he passed through uh, the sacrifice. And so that's how God appeared there. Uh, God also appeared as fire in a burning bush. Uh, to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. So God uh, appears as fire in the Old Testament, uh, but fire is also a symbol of God's purity. Uh, you know that your works will be tested by fire eventually. And you also know that uh, Isaiah, when he said, I am a man of unclean lips, God cleansed his mouth uh, with a burning coal, right? When we were kids, our, our parents washed our mouths out with soap, right? That was a lot different and probably better, even though it was horrible, uh, still better than a burning coal, right? Uh, so uh, that's how God does it. He, he uses fire to, to cleanse. Uh, and so uh, that's how, that's the, the, the imagery here is purity and, and the vision of God himself in fire. And, and then verse four says uh, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, when the Bible talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, it can use two words. There's either the baptism of the Spirit or there's the filling of the Spirit. And uh, when, what, what was happening here, even though the word here is filled, it, this is the baptism of the Spirit. This is what Jesus said was going to happen in Acts uh, chapter 1, verse 5. He said, uh, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized not many days from now with the Holy Spirit. And so what is happening here in Acts chapter 2 is the baptism uh, of the Holy Spirit. You can only be baptized by the Holy Spirit once. That happens the first time. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit uh, subsequently, and that happens throughout the Bible, and you can see it several times even in Acts. Uh, in Acts 4.8, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and made a speech to the elders. Uh, in Acts 7.55, uh, Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit as he was about to die from the stoning, and he looked up and he saw the glory of God. And, and in Acts 13.9, Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, and he uh, condemned a sorcerer to blindness uh, for a period of time. And so you can be filled subsequently after the baptism, but, but the, uh, the term baptism of the Spirit is never used except for the first time when you are receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit and you become a Christian, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, filling can be for special inspiration. It's like uh, you're having your spiritual battery recharged for some kind of task uh, that God might have for you. And so uh, that's what's going on here. It's called the filling, but it's actually... Uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, that's going on here. And so we have this setting where, where the people have come and they've received the Holy Spirit and the wind has come and this, this noise is amazing. And, and all of a sudden, uh, they began to speak in tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But first, I want to read about the reaction of all these people uh, who heard and came running. So we're going to read verses 5 through 13. 
Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear, our, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. Well, uh, we know something about these people because we know that there were Jews living all over the known world at that time uh, as a result of the uh, dispersion, right? The, the Assyrians, we know, exiled the northern tribes of Israel uh, in 722 BC, and they, they scattered to the north. Uh, in 586, the two southern tribes were exiled to Babylon, uh, and so they lived there for a time, but, but they were allowed to come back after a period of time, and some, some of them did come back, but most of them did not. And so you had generations, uh, centuries of Jews living outside of Israel now, and of course, learning the language, assimilating into the culture that they belong to. And so they know other languages. They don't know Hebrew anymore, uh, or uh, probably they do know Aramaic, but not Hebrew anymore. And, and it's uh, a time where, where they're living outside the land, uh, but now some of these people have come back uh, so they're the people that he's talking about here. These are the Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation, uh, but they had come back to Jerusalem. And so not only did we have those people living there, we also have Jews who are originally from Israel, but not necessarily from Jerusalem. And then we have native Jerusalemites living there. So uh, all these people are living there and they're all in attendance. And so the question is, what did they hear? Well, they heard this, let me, let me go back and say that, the, the dispersion. Uh, we were talking about the dispersion a minute ago, and I want you to see that, that the apostles generally uh, would write to, the, to these apostles or the people who wrote the New Testament would write to, their, to the dispersion. James did it. He said, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. And Peter wrote his epistle to these same people. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered across Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So you can see that these tribes are scattered all over, and the apostles wanted to write to the Jews who were scattered all over the land. And so that's what he's doing, and, and these are the Jews who are living uh, in Jerusalem at the time. And, and so what they heard was this incredible sound of rushing wind. And so they hear this sound, and they all come running. Uh, and, and they come running, and when they arrive, they're stunned to hear uh, these Galileans speaking in their own language, uh, which is amazing. Uh, Luke really uh, just uses language to, so that we'll be sure, that, to be sure that we get it. He says they were stunned uh, to hear all of the disciples speaking in the crowd's own language. In verse 6, it says bewildered. In verse 7, it says that they were amazed and astonished. And in verse 12, it says they continued in amazement and perplexity. And so uh, Luke is just trying to uh, in human terms, as best as he can, just get us to understand the significance of what is going on here and how amazed everybody was uh, by what they saw. 
And in verse 7, they say, uh, why aren't these people who are speaking here Galileans? Now, you have to catch the nuance of what is being said here. That's really a slam against Galileans. Uh, what they're saying is that Galileans, uh, you are people from the north. You're from the country. You're uncouth. You're uneducated. You're uncultured. How is it possible uh, that you can know uh, all these languages while, you know, us city people from, from Jerusalem, uh, you know, we're the cultured and educated ones. And so uh, they, they were very surprised uh, because they have this prejudice against people from the country, which, let's face it, all people from the city have prejudice against people from the country. And, and that's, that's something that uh, has been going on for 2,000 years, and, and, and it was going on at the time. And so uh, they, were, they were very surprised to hear this language. And it seems that they were not so much surprised about the content of the speech, uh, because Luke doesn't really say what the content of the speech was, except to say that they were... Uh, extolling uh, the, 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 the wonders of God in another language, just nothing specific. It seems that they're more surprised that they're hearing these people uh, in their own language, and that's the thing that, that, that knocks their socks off. And so uh, let's think about the, um, the, the people who were there and, and where they're from. I want you to see uh, on this map where these people are all from. Uh, he's, he's generally moving from east to west, and kind of counterclockwise. But what I want you to see is that it's around the entire known world. Uh, he's talking about uh, Parthians, and he's talking about Midianites, and he's talking about Elam, and then he moves to Mesopotamia, and then to Pontus and Cappadocia and Jerusalem, and then to Pam uh, Pamphylia, Phrygia. Uh, this is the uh, area which is now uh, modern-day Turkey, but it was Asia Minor at the time. Then he goes to Rome, and then he goes to Crete, and then Libya down here, and then to Egypt, and all the way back. So Luke is basically saying it's the entire known world who is represented here, and each person in the known world is hearing the wonders of God in their own language. And I think that's just fantastic. But he's speaking, these people are speaking in tongues. And so I have to say a word about tongues, a controversial topic, but... Uh, I don't mind controversy, so we're going to get into it a little bit. Uh, we're just going to spend a minute on it. The first thing that we have to know, <laughs> I'll be careful. The first thing we have to know is that this is not uh, ecstatic utterance, right? This is, this is speech that is intelligible. It's just, it just happens to be not in the language that these guys natively spoke. Uh, the word that is used uh, in verse 6, 9, and 11 is the word dialectos which always means language. So it's a known language that these people are speaking. Some of these passers-by accuse them of being drunk. Uh, but Peter dispels that in verse uh, 15. We'll see that next week. He says they're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. Uh, and, and so obviously it's not impossible to be drunk by 9 a.m. Uh, people, people do that. Uh, but these guys probably not because uh, feast days were fast days. And a, a religious observing Jew would certainly not be drunk uh, before 9 a.m. He wouldn't have eaten, even have eaten or drank anything because they didn't uh, eat or drink until after morning services. Uh, so very unlikely that, that these guys were drunk for that reason. And second reason is that uh, if you've ever spoken to a drunk before, uh, and I've spoken to a few uh, in my time. They, they don't speak intelligently. They speak incoherently. Uh, these guys were speaking intelligently. They were just speaking intelligently in some other language uh, that was not their own. So uh, what do we make of this? So what do we make of this idea of tongues? 
the Bible teaches that any time the tongues was spoken, it was supposed to be uh, for the edification of the church or as a sign for unbelievers. And verse 4 says, they spoke as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. So obviously the Holy Spirit has a purpose for these tongues being given and, 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 and being used at this time. And I think that the purpose was evangelistic in nature. Uh, it's intelligible speech, and the people who came rushing and heard these people speaking in tongues, well, that's a pretty great evangelistic tool to see what the Holy Spirit has done here. Uh, and I think it prepares them. Uh, it's to show others, uh, the, these unbelievers, the, the miracle and the power and the gift of the Holy Spirit and uh, that, that as a result of hearing this miraculous speech, uh, they become prepared uh, to have their hearts uh, softened and they're ready to receive the Holy Spirit themselves. As we progress through Acts, we're going to see a couple of, of other instances of people speaking in tongues. We're going to see it in chapter 10, and we're going to see it again in chapter 19. Uh, but from those two chapters, uh, there's just not a lot of context there, so we really don't know uh, if the words were understood. Uh, the word used for tongues there was not dialectos, but glossa. And glossa can only mean either the tongue, the organ in your mouth, or a known language. So in those times, a known language was being spoken as well. In Luke chapter 10, it's Cornelius and, and his group. They receive the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in tongues. Uh, and then in chapter 19, Paul baptized some disciples near Ephesus and, they, and then they began to speak in tongues. But there's just no context to know uh, what was said or whether it was understood. Uh, one thing that we need to understand about Bible interpretation and one of, the, one of the maxims that you learn is that you always interpret the difficult verses in light of the easy verses that, that, are, that speak on the same point. So Acts chapter 2 seems to be clearly saying that it was a known and understood language. And so I interpret Acts chapter 10 and 19 in that light. I think they also were known languages uh, and able to be understood. And I think that they were given... Uh, for evangelistic purposes as well, and to show the power of the Holy Spirit in receiving uh, these tongues. And so it would have been evangelistic to anybody who saw and heard. Now, there are tongues spoken in other places in the Bible. Paul, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, spends a lot of time on tongues. But whenever he talks about tongues, he talks about the gift of interpretation as well. He always wants them to be used side by side. He says that it's not uh, fruitful for somebody to speak in tongues uh, without having the gift of interpretation. So uh, to me, that makes it clear that it is not ecstatic utterance, but something that can be uh, interpreted. Uh, the purpose of speaking in tongues is to show others the power of the Holy Spirit and lead others to salvation, or it's to edify the church. Uh, in fact, you know, the entire purpose of language is to be understood, right? And God gave us language so that he could speak to us, so that he could give us the Bible and that we could understand him and he could communicate with us. And Paul talked in 1 Corinthians 14 about tongues being pointless uh, unless there is no, unless there's someone there to interpret. And if there's no one there to interpret, then they're of no value to anyone. So uh, I think that, that these tongues are, uh, it's a known language. It's something that can be interpreted for the purpose of evangelism or for edifying the church. Now, I'm sure that since I've gone down the road this far on tongues, you want to know if tongues have ceased, right? So let's just chase this rabbit a little further down the trail just for another couple minutes. Um, you know, scholars, of course, are divided uh, as to whether the gift of tongues have ceased. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 
13.8, where if there are tongues, they will cease. But Paul did not say when they will cease. And so those who say that tongues have ceased are called cessationists. Uh, And their argument is basically, uh, from a historical standpoint, there's just not a lot written about tongues after apostolic times. It just, there's some, but not very much at all. Uh, Biblically, they argue that the author of Hebrews, who must have been a second generation Christian from the context of the entire letter, uh, this is what he says about it. He seems to say that tongues have ceased. He says uh, in uh, chapter two, verses three through four, after it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his will. And so the author seems to be speaking in the past tense, uh, saying that the signs and wonders were spoken through the apostles, but that they were not happening anymore. Uh, And they also argue that uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, it says tongues will cease. And so this is what they say about those verses. It says, In the verses, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. A cessationist argues that when the perfect comes means the coming of the New Testament, the completion of the canon of the Bible. Uh, That's the end. That marks the end of tongues, that that tongues were uh, a sign for unbelievers at that time. But now that we have the entire Bible, uh, tongues are no longer needed. Well, that's what a secessionist would say. A non-secessionist or a continuationist, uh, somebody who says that the the gift of tongues has not ceased, will use this exact same verse and say, no, you're misinterpreting the verse. Uh, When the perfect comes does not mean uh, the completion of the New Testament. It means when Christ comes a second time. They would say, has the New Testament made anything perfect? Look at the world around you. The world is a mess. Uh, The New Testament hasn't fixed anything. It saved people, uh, but it has not fixed the world. And so... Uh, that would be their argument in terms of, uh, of the Bible. Uh, I think that you can make a case for, for tongues uh, continuing uh, biblically. Uh, they also argue that uh, there are, in fact, very few references to, to tongues after the first century, but there are a few. And so they would say it's not completely void uh, historically of evidence of tongues. And they would also point to what's going on in the Middle East today. They would say uh, in the Middle East today, there is, they're just incredible stories of people seeing God in dreams, being saved, and, uh, and speaking in tongues. That, that, that seems to be happening in the Middle East. And so they would say that this is a present gift uh, that is still ongoing, and it's happening there because they don't have the Bible. They don't have evangelists like we have here, uh, and it's necessary there like it was necessary in the first century. So that's what a non-cessationist or a continualist might say. Well, it's very difficult to say. I am a DTS guy through and through, and that means I am supposed to be a cessationist, and uh, I have to hang my hat on the cessationist rack, but uh, I'll tell you, um, some of the stories that I've heard are, are, are kind of hard to argue with, and uh, what, I, what I think about it is that, uh, my, my opinion is that it's not normative that people do speak in tongues. Uh, but I'm not going to say what God can and can't do, right? I'm not going to stand up here and say God can't allow people to speak in tongues if, if, if that's his will for today. Uh, I've never seen it personally. Uh, and I also know that when I hear of people speaking in tongues, uh, I'm a little suspicious automatically. I, I want to test it uh, biblically. 
Uh, and I know that if I saw it in this church, uh, that might make me a little uncomfortable too. So just give me warning if you're going to do it, okay? Um, we have to test it biblically. Uh, tongues, tongues have a purpose in the New Testament, and we see them in the New Testament. They're used for evangelistic purposes. They're used for edifying the church, and they are uh, they're in, in intelligent, uh, interpretable speech. And so uh, even 1 Corinthians 14 says, tongues were given as a sign to unbelievers. So I think that if you don't have uh, the ability to interpret, and if you don't have uh, edifying or evangelistic purposes, uh, then this is the kind of thing that Paul would say, encourage that you don't do in the church. Uh, he always wanted there to be an interpreter there so that the church could be edified. So uh, that's what I think about uh, tongues. And, and where I think we have to draw the line, like whether you're a cessationist or not a cessationist, uh, where we have to draw the line is that anyone who teaches that you must speak in tongues as evidence of, a, of your salvation, that's a false teaching. Um, even during the apostolic ministry, it was rare that people who were saved uh, spoke in tongues uh, after receiving the Holy Spirit. And so we should not put that yoke uh, that first, believer, first century believers didn't have to have on anybody today. Uh, when Molly was a new believer, uh, she went to uh, this church in North Carolina, and it happened to be a Pentecostal charismatic church. And I'm not saying that all of them teach this but this church in particular did. And one of the women who was there asked Molly, uh, have you spoken in tongues uh, since you're a new believer? Uh, and you can imagine as a new believer how uh, confusing and how difficult that would be when you're trying to figure things out and somebody is putting that on you. So uh, that, that's a very difficult thing. And uh, we have to be careful that we don't go that far. Now, tongues is a divisive topic. Uh, and I also want to say that it's not a salvation issue. And so you can agree or disagree with anything that I've set up here, and we are still brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, a wise person once said, in, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, charity, in all things, grace. So that's what I'm going to say about tongues. All right, enough about tongues. I'm sure you've had enough. Uh, let's move on to the all-important question that these people who were witnessing the gift of the Holy Spirit, let's see what the, this question that they asked, and let's answer it. Uh, they said, what does it mean? Well, they're asking, what does it mean that these Galileans had received the Holy Spirit and were able to speak in tongues? And the first thing it means, I think, is that God fulfills his promises you know, before Jesus was crucified, uh, he told these, the, the disciples several times in the upper room uh, that he was going to go, but he would not leave them as orphans. He would send them a comforter. And so that's what he does. He sends them the comforter. And, and in Acts 1, after he was resurrected, he told them the same thing. And here it is, the delivery of the promise. And, and Jesus made so many promises. And, and this passage shows us that we can trust him with the promises that he makes. And the promise of the, of the Holy Spirit uh, means that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us now. And uh, I wish I had time to expound all of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, but, but one thing it certainly does is it makes us God's children. Uh, it seals us uh, as God's children, and it gives us the ability to become more Christ-like uh, because we have him, the Holy Spirit, living inside of us. God, the third person of the Trinity, actually living inside of us. We are not slaves to sin anymore because we can cooperate with the Holy Spirit and resist sin. And we're free to live for Christ because we have the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, if God fulfilled that promise, think about some of the other promises we can believe because he is trustworthy. John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so this means we have a place in heaven waiting for us if we simply believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. We're saved and we have a room reserved for us in the Grand Heavenly Hotel. And how wonderful a thought that is. And another promise that he makes, John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to them, them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the, and the Father are one. So we have this waiting place in heaven, and our salvation is eternally secure. Uh, these are incredible promises. And uh, once in 2 Corinthians and twice in Ephesians, uh, it is said that the Holy Spirit is given to us as a deposit, uh, guaranteeing what is to come a down payment, a pledge, and that we're sealed as God's children. Uh, do you know that, that seals were used by kings? And the way it worked was that they would spread hot wax over the thing to be sealed, and then they would press their signet ring into the cooling wax so that it formed a mold with the king, king's insignia on that seal. And if you were foolish enough to break that seal, you would be executed for insurrection against the king. You were not able to break the seal of the king. And in the same way, no one can break the seal that God has given us in the Holy Spirit. It's living, he's living inside of us, and it's a deposit guaranteeing our future salvation, and no one can take that away from us. So God fulfills his promises. The second thing that this means is that the kingdom of God is multiracial, multiethnic, and multicultural. You know that many commentators that I read said that that uh, what happened here was actually a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. Uh, remember that at Babel that God told his people to scatter throughout the world. Uh, but people tried to reach up to heaven by building this enormous tower that would reach all the way up to the heavens. And, and they were trying to make a name for themselves by building this tower. And, and that was disobedient to God and it was prideful. And so God... Uh, scattered their languages, confused their languages, and the people had to scrap the project, and ultimately they did scatter all over the place. But at Pentecost, the opposite happens. God gathers everyone together. Instead of the people proudly reaching up, God humbly comes down to earth. Uh, and God made all these languages understood so that the people, instead of acting in pride, praised God. And so you have this, this reversal going on. And so uh, in Jerusalem at Pentecost, God shows that his will is for, for all tribes, all nations, all peoples to be uh, believers. And God, God's blessing united them all in the spirit. And I think that it's pretty fantastic that God has placed Grace Redeemer in a multinational, multi-ethnic, multicultural city. How convenient for us that he's placed us among the very people that he wants us to reach. Uh, is God great or what? So all we have to do now uh, is go out and do it. And I know that that's what we're going to do. And the third thing I want you to see is that the church was born on that day. 
As believers, we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. And those who come after us are going to stand on our shoulders uh, as well. But we are all part of this universal church. We're all part. God has, uh, God's word says that we are fitted together into this growing spiritual organism uh, called the universal church, which is God's people uh, called out of the world uh, who love Christ and who want to love others like Christ loved them. Uh, and, and so that's what the church is. And, you know, in our day, uh, the church may not seem like a very powerful entity anymore. And, you know, Christianity is, is mocked uh, and, and people are being persecuted and even being killed around the world for, for their faith today. Um, it's outlawed in many places and it's not uh, impossible to think that someday it could be outlawed even in our own country. But Here's what Jesus said about the church in Matthew chapter 16. He said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The world may hate the church, but Jesus loves the church and he's going to protect it. And if the gates of Hades can't prevail against the church, what is this world going to do to us? There is nothing that this world can do to us, right? You know that great passage at the end of Romans 8. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. So the world cannot hurt us. And so I just thank God for the gift of the Holy Spirit. I thank God that he fulfills his promises. And I thank God for the universal church, the giving of the Holy Spirit that allows us to just go out and be his witnesses. And, and may we do what the first century apostles did. And I thank God for Grace Redeemer Community Church and its location so that we are perfectly placed to go fulfill his mission. Let's pray. Lord God, you are an amazing God. Uh, no one, no one would invent this. This has to be from you because no man could create this. No man could invent this. Uh, this is a story that, that only you could write because it's true, Lord, and it's beyond our, fathom, uh, our ability to fathom, and it's, it's beyond our ability to, to make up. Lord, you are good, and you are great, and you gave your son Jesus so that we could have eternal life. He paid for our sins on the cross, and when we believe in him, we take on his righteousness and he takes on our sin and we get the added benefit of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we're so thankful, Lord, for that. We pray that we would use the Holy Spirit, not neglect him, not grieve him, but use the Holy Spirit that you have given us to go out and reach the world for Christ, Lord. We ask that you help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.